In the opening sentence of his latest book, Divided We Fall, David French offers an arresting warning. The continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. The book, David's Fourth, was published two months prior to the 2020 election. And over the past few months, David's words have already proved to be eerily prophetic and perhaps also a kind of national wake-up call. One concern, he argues, is that the cultural left versus cultural right, or politically Biden supporters versus Trump supporters, or if you prefer, elites versus mainstream Americans, or really cull the divide across almost any category, religion, race, income, that as Americans, we're increasingly just not reading off the same score sheet. We're looking at different facts, if you will. In today's conversation with New York Times national correspondent Ruth Graham, David offers this reflection about social media and the increasingly polarized life it produces, in this case, after the protests following the death of Freddie Gray. It was like there were two parallel worlds, one of police attacking peaceful protesters, and here was another one of, what do you mean peaceful protesters? These are rioters. And they both had video evidence. Born in Kentucky, David is a 1991 Harvard Law grad who in 2007 was deployed to Iraq as an Army Reserve Major, only to be later awarded a Bronze Star after his active duty service during the surge. He returned to civilian life in 2014, building on years of work on free speech issues and religious liberty as a lawyer and later as president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. David subsequently turned to journalism for four years as a writer at National Review before in 2019 becoming senior editor and one of the founding journalists for The Dispatch, a center-right, subscription-based newsletter that strives to add value by bringing concise, consequential political and cultural news to the inboxes of its subscribers. He's also a columnist for Time Magazine. In a strange twist, political mavens and DC insiders may recall that in 2016, David was courted by conservative intellectual Bill Kristol for a potential third-party presidential run. After thinking through the costs, risks, and opportunities, David and his wife Nancy, who co-authored their book Home and Away in 2011, after his initial deployment, decided together that such a moment wasn't right. Yet, David's varied career has perhaps uniquely equipped him to be a voice of clarity and poise amid the tumultuous, confusing turns in our national life, including the 2020 election aftermath and the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol which Ruth Graham asks about as she ably leads this conversation. For her part, Ruth is a graduate of Wheaton College, a four-year liberal arts Christian college outside of Chicago, sometimes called the Harvard of the Christian world. As you've perhaps heard other podcast guests note, Ruth is also one of the most interesting, most careful religion reporters in our generation. I hope you'll follow her work. She's written already for four years at the New York Sun, for two years as a senior editor of Domino Magazine, which is published by Condé Nast, for two years at Slate, and now at the New York Times as of just six months ago. So let's dive in to hear David's view of the nature and scope of American fracture, its oft-religious underpinnings, and how Ruth and David each understand the role of the media in that larger mix. Enjoy the conversation. I'll start by asking you, you know, when I saw you had this book coming out in the fall, I thought, 
you know, secession. It just felt like a bit much, you know, division. Sure. You know, I, I can read those tea leaves and see what's going on, but secession. And then last week came January 6th. You lay out these four conditions for secession in the book based on what happened in the 1860s. And in the book say, you know, we've basically fulfilled three of these criteria, but not the fourth. And maybe I'll let you get into that, but maybe you could start just by sort of giving an update on where you see the U.S. on that road to secession now on January 14th. Yeah. So I, I wrote the book because my basic view was that there, and, and I put this in the very first paragraph, it's sort of the thesis is right there, that there's no truly important social, cultural, political, or religious trend that's pulling us together as much as it's pushing us apart. And I have a very simple thesis that can't go on forever in us to stay together and how it could reach a crisis point is unpredictable, but that we would reach a crisis point unless we pull back from some of these trends is very predictable. And so what I think has happened is that because of the pandemic overlaid on top of pre-existing division, because of a lot of the divisions that were, I'm not going to say awareness of a lot of divisions, a pre-existing divisions were reawakened during the George Floyd, the wave of George Floyd protests laid on top of this election contest has accelerated a lot of the trends that I talked about in the book. When I wrote it, I closed the book on the book, so to speak, in middle of March. And I knew when I finished it, my biggest hurdle would be exactly, Ruth, how you said this. Secession? Really? Division? Sure. Secession? And I was very careful in the book to say, no, I don't think it's going to be immediate. But here's these four conditions. The last one hasn't been fulfilled yet, but if it is, watch out. And then what has happened over the next several months has been, sadly, nothing but proving my thesis. And the four conditions, we won't keep people in suspense, <laughs> are pretty simple. One is that you have an area of the country that is geographically contiguous. In other words, a bunch of states together. Number two is culturally distinct. It, has a, it views itself as having a specific kind of culture. That number three believes that culture is under threat. Those were the three things that I thought were fulfilled here. But the fourth is, and that threat reaches a violent proportions, of a violent nature. And that's where I said we were not there yet. We could get there at some point in the future, but we're not there yet. And then all of a sudden, holy smokes, we're a lot closer to being there than I ever imagined when I finished the book in March. When you look back at last week, and you've written a little bit about this since, but I'm curious about, you know, to what extent you see this as a Christian phenomenon. We know that Christian language and symbols were everywhere there. My colleague Elizabeth Dyes and I have been reporting on that, you know, flags, t-shirts, Bibles. We've interviewed, you know, a lot of Christians who are there. But I also have a hunch that there were a lot of people there who might sort of identify as evangelical, but wouldn't otherwise be recognizable as Christian or evangelical. We can get into that a little bit. But I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you saw there specifically. And as a writer who's a Christian and writes about those themes, how you saw that play out. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I'm glad you I'm glad that you mentioned at the very end that somebody who might consider themselves evangelical, but like you and I would not necessarily see them in a church pew all that often. And it's very interesting because this harkens back to a lot of the arguments that were had over the last since 9/11 about Islamic 
radical movements. And you had all kinds of folks in the Muslim faith who are saying they aren't real. This is not true Islam. This is not true Islam. This is not true Islam. And then a whole bunch of conservative Christians were like, they say they're Muslim. That's why they say they're doing this. So, you know, I, I mean, what else do you want me to say about it? And so one of the things that you saw emerge here was a lot of people saying what happened on the 6th was godless. I mean, the, the murder of a police officer, the attack, the literal attack on the Capitol, the seizure of a Capitol to the extent that we haven't seen since the British Army did it in 1814. Like, where's Christ in that? Which is a completely legitimate theological question to ask. Completely legitimate. I say Christ was not in that. But you know who said Christ was in that? A ton of the people there. And it was all over. I mean, your your piece where you began, correct me if I'm wrong, you began with the Proud Boys praying. And nobody in my churches I've attended would say, oh, Proud Boys, yeah, absolutely. They're faithful Christians. But the Proud Boys viewed this as a sacred act and sounding in Christianity and, and again and again and again. And so you have all of these people sort of outside the church and they're saying, well, okay, I, we've got these people saying they're not true Christians, but we've got the actual rioters saying they are and that they're acting out of deep devotion. And by the way, just a few weeks ago, didn't we have the Jericho March and, and wasn't one of the headliners, Eric Metaxas? And oh, by the way, are you going to say the author of Bonhoeffer is not a real Christian? Didn't he headline the national prayer breakfast? And then you have you these folks who are sort of like stop the steal, peaceful stop the steal, but they're still just lying and deluded and fanatical about the stop the steal. And those ranks are full, chock full of Christians that you will see in the pews. And so I'm kind of impatient with the argument that says, no, don't say this is Christian. Don't say this is Christian. That's not a standard that we have applied for almost 20 years, for example, to radical Islamic or jihadist activity. And we have to be honest enough with ourselves to say, one of the problems we have here is religious. If, you're, if you want to object to me saying Christian, can you at least agree religious? It has me thinking a lot about religion coverage. I mean, naturally, as a journalist, but a lot of us on the religion beat work really hard to not nutpick a term you use in the book that I think is so helpful. And I'll let you talk about it, but you know, to basically to not select the most extreme kind of nuttiest examples from not just the other side, but in this case, you know, any particular religious community that you're covering. And I think that's a good instinct, but January 6th, it's just the latest moment where I've kind of wondered if that instinct has maybe led some of us to ignore some things for too long. And, you know, the people that we were talking to that were there last week, if we weren't going to nutpick, no one would, you know, no one would be in the story at a certain point. You know, there's just like, that's, that is what is happening. I think a lot about this piece that uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells wrote for the New Yorker back in 2016 about I think that the headline was like the invisible religious right. And it was during the Roy Moore special election when he had been accused of, you know, coming on to these women when they were teenagers and he was in his thirties. And there was this list of like 50 pastors who had supposedly sort of said that they supported Roy Moore. And the list turned out to 
kind of fall apart. Like he had culled it from past lists of supporters and it, it like wasn't a, it wasn't a real list, but there were a number of names on there who still did. And it was all, it was like no one you or I would have heard of. It was all, you know, guys with like a church of 75 people in, you know, rural church. And this article, typically the kind of people that like I would have quote unquote known better than to call up or listen to or, or like represent as a leader of the faith. And yet when you cumulatively add up all those folks, that's a real phenomenon. And if those guys are defending Roy Moore and speaking about them, you know, to their parishioners, and I, I think there's, you know, obvious analog to last week is just at what point do you have to, do you have to listen to and, you know, amplify those voices because they're talking amongst themselves and it's a, it has, it's a real phenomenon and you ha- and you have a responsibility to sort of cover the nuts. <laughs> And David, let me just amplify that a little bit by reading a line or two from Ruth's Ruth's latest piece with with Elizabeth. You know, this quote from Lindsay French, an evangelical from Texas, saying, "No relation, quote, no relation." Uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh, that we are fighting good versus evil, dark versus light. She said, declaring that she was rising up like Queen Esther, the biblical heroine who saved her people from death. And then moments later, from Owen Orr, thirty-one from North Carolina. I know that the Lord has my back, no matter what happens. This sort of direct contact with God, this sort of dreams and visions type fueled activism, as opposed to something that squares with political realities or other cultural checks. What about that? Yeah, okay. Boy, this is good stuff here. And let me just preface it by saying, this is really hard to figure out, okay? So I hear you completely, and one of the things I hate the most about modern discourse is nutpicking. And what nutpicking is, just as a short definition, it's a great, marvelous term. I didn't invent it, sadly. It was invented by a commenter of Kevin Drum's back in the early blogosphere days. And it essentially means picking out a, someone who is particularly unhinged from the other side and elevating them and saying, say, see, that's what they're really like. And this is basically like the, the model of political discourse on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is where how you always prove how awful the other side is, is by finding that one or two or three, those one or two or three voices who are really over the top and saying, see, look, look how bad they are. Sort of like how if there's any one image I've seen from Hollywood celebrities over the last four years, more than any other, it's Kathy Griffin in right-wing Twitter holding up the, you know, a simulated severed head of Donald Trump, like that's emblematic of Hollywood celebrity culture, you know, when really that was a crazy moment. And so you want to really avoid that because then you contribute to sort of this fevered atmosphere. But what's the difference between sometimes these guys are actually at the vanguard of a movement. Like they're, they're not nuts. They're pioneers. They're emerging leaders. And so it's very, very hard to tell the difference sometimes. And so sometimes by the time you realize the movement exists, it's already too late to deal with it effectively. So, for example, some of this just over-the-top Christian nationalism and, and apocalyptic language that led to January 6th, by the time it's reached Eric Metaxas, it's kind of too late But it's only by the time that it's reached Eric Metaxas that you can sort of turn around to other people and say, so see, now you can prove that it's a problem. And so this is, this is why our jobs are hard. (laughs) You know, look, I know the media has problems, but I'll tell you, it is very 
difficult to look at a complex, diverse community and to identify and to separate sort of the wheat from the chaff on what are the meaningful trends and not the meaningful trends. It's really difficult. And it becomes more difficult when that same community has a very defensive sort of mindset versus the towards the outside world. So it's going to constantly be telling you, stop nitpicking us. We don't have a problem. We don't have a problem. And if you identify a problem, they'll say, that's just a small fringe. That's just a small fringe. And I think for me, when I really went from, okay, wait a minute, the church kind of took the least worst choice. I was a never Trumper from way back, but took the least worst choice in choosing Trump over Hillary Clinton to know there's something deeply, deeply wrong here. When I began to get furious blowback to my opposition to Roy Moore, okay, so much so even personally, like I remember walking into my son's basketball game at the Christian school that uh, they attended in rural Tennessee, and two families turned their backs to me in the stands because of Roy Moore. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. I don't agree with you, but I can totally understand that if you're electing the most powerful person in the world, that there is a strong argument of lesser of two evils if you're going to sort of make that construct. But when you're talking about a less than half a term for the junior senator from Alabama, is that what we're talking about? And then I began to realize, I, I think there's a deep problem here that a lot of pastors are missing because they honestly don't encounter this side of their own congregation, if that makes sense. Well, so I'm really interested in that because a few things, I mean, I've interviewed so many pastors over the last few years who have really lamented, you know, I get one hour with people a week, you know, maybe there's a Wednesday night Bible study or something. I get one hour. And meanwhile, Fox has them, you know, Fox or like OAN or Newsmax on Facebook, whatever else has them for just so much more time. So, it, you know, it's a discipleship issue as you and others have, have sort of put it in Christian terms. So I almost wonder, given that probably a lot of, there are more pastors now, you know, this week, even than two weeks ago, who are thinking about how to address this, how to talk about it, how to disciple, but what, you know, what can they do given that, given that imbalance? And then the second part of this question too, which is that that's even just, that's assuming that people are in the pews, you know, are under the leadership of a pastor, are tuned into a pastor who can see things clearly. And then, if, you know, there's a whole other chunk of people who aren't. So let me give you my best shot at unpacking this and why I think some pastors are missing what's happening and why it's going to be so hard to deal with. You know, the church inside and out, and you've, I'm sure you've heard this, this sort of like fake statistic when talking to pastors that is like 20% of the congregation does 80% of the work. I think that's probably an overestimate. I think it's like 10% of the congregation does 90% of the work. And I think over on a day-to-day -day relationship basis, pastors are dealing with a slice of the congregation and that's the most engaged slice or in some circumstances, most the most troubled, like a divorce issue or a kid who's battling drugs or, you know, in their, in their sort of counseling capacity. And so they often, I think, miss a lot of the day-to-day -day reality of the majority of their congregation. Like, they're not sitting there trolling through all their Facebook feeds. You know, they're dealing with the, the elders. They're dealing with the, you know, the guys who are going on the short-term missions. And a big chunk of life, of Christian life, is sort of passing through without as much of an intimate amount of knowledge. 
Whereas those of us who've been engaged in political discourse from within the church see those people in the church who are politically engaged. That's who's up, that is who is up in our face. It's that segment of the church that's politically engaged. And they're not, there's a Venn diagram, but it's not the same group of people who are up in the face of the pastor necessarily. And so in my position, I've been sort of like, whoa, wow, look at who's front facing politically for the church. And then I have a lot of pastors who are like, David, stop wearing out the church. If you're sitting where I am, you see something different. And I'm thinking, yeah, exactly. I'm fully aware that your elders probably aren't like this. But you, I would bet it would surprise you how many of your congregants are. And so often what you're dealing with is, you know, a Venn diagram and some of the most deeply committed are like, you know, are in this sort of political frenzy, but a lot are not. And I'll just be honest with you, Ruth. I don't see a good answer coming to this. I just don't. I mean, one of the things I wonder, you know, these the scholars of Christian nationalism, I, I'm thinking of like Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry and say that Christian nationalists have a lot more in common with non-Christian nationalists than they do with other Christians in, in a lot of ways, you know, just culturally. And I think this goes back to the big divide in your book too. And I, you know, I wonder American Christian, American religion is it's a marketplace, an entrepreneurial kind of scene. You can always stop going to your church and go to another one or find a profit online or, you know, there's, you can, if you're, if you don't like what you're hearing in church, if it's too uncomfortable for you or for any other reason you leave. So Sarah Pulliam Bailey did that amazing story last fall in the Washington Post about these Patriot churches, which at the moment is a pretty small phenomenon, but I, I do wonder, okay, who, who rises up, you know, who, who kind of, as this all sorts out, who will kind of meet this obvious hunger for this, this kind of blend of, nationalism and Christianity. And I, you have the pastors, sort of the traditional pastors again, but I, yeah, I just wonder kind of, is there going to be sort of a, is there a market for this coming from the pulpit in some ways? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been to churches that have long traditions of like faith and freedom Sunday that are very dedicated to sort of, and, and there are ways this can be done, but that are very dedicated to sort of honoring America and sort of God's providence over America. There are churches where I live. I live in Franklin, Tennessee, and mainly sort of south of Franklin, which is more sort of suburban Nashville, that for a whole month of July, sometimes you'll see them just surrounded by American flags, just like a wall of American flags running all up and down the street by the church. And you look at that and you're thinking, Look, I, I mean, I served our country in uniform. I, I, I served in the military. I, I deployed to Iraq in 2007 and 2008 as part of the surge. And I consider myself a, a patriotic American citizen. But there's a deep, I have a deep discomfort with covering a church with American flags. And the other thing is, I think, I think a lot of us kind of missed the Christian nationalism because I think it's a mistake in some ways to even call it theological you know, I, I fully respect the work of the scholars of the sort of the theology of Christian nationalism. I think it's just deeply cultural and emotional that you would even look at a Christian nationalist and you and you would be able to say to them, and they would readily agree that I serve Christ and I do not more than I serve Trump. I serve Christ and the church more than I serve this country. But 
that is not that intellectual assent to that idea has not infiltrated into their heart. And in their heart, they're inseparable, functionally inseparable. And I think that's what we're dealing with far more than a sort of intellectual Christian nationalist movement or anything like akin to like the melding of state and church. But David, is that is that a distinct vulnerability for evangelicals? I mean, specifically, you know, like Ed Stetzer likes to talk about how Mark Knoll's book said there was no evangelical mind 20 years ago. But now it's more about gullibility. It's more about sort of latching on to the safety of saying the sort of foolish things about the other, whether it's extremes about pedophiles dominating Hollywood, as you talk about in the book with QAnon or elites stealing an election, sort of grabbing on to the safety claims of, of an otherizing trend. I mean, is there something about, again, this direct relationship with God, dreams and visions, me and Jesus, that makes evangelicals more vulnerable than other religious communities in the United States? Well, evangelicals are diverse. I mean, you've got everything from, you know, the label evangelical encompasses everything from a dreams and visions, faith healing, speaking in tongues, Pentecostal, to the frozen chosen in the Presbyterian church, who really in a lot of other terms, you know, I grew up in the, in the South. I was born in Alabama, raised in Tennessee and Kentucky, where denominational differences really mattered. <laughs> I mean, really mattered. But they melted away in politics, just melted away. So you could have somebody who was uh, listening to Benny Hinn and somebody who's listening to R.C. Sproul, which are very different figures and completely as committed to George W. Bush, for example. And so it's a really interesting phenomenon of, and in many ways, politics became the center of evangelical unity. That's where we could all kind of come together is around politics. And look, politics are seductive to people. I mean, in a couple of, in a number of ways. One is the, on the virtuous sense, you feel like you can do things and the first prong of Micah 6.8, act justly. You can you can do things to improve the condition of your fellow man and your family through politics. But there's also a lot of it that sort of scratches a sort of an existential itch as well. I mean, you sort of have the ecstasy of crowds, which is something that you've seen in the Trump rallies. It can provide a sense of purpose when other areas of life do not provide purpose. And so I think what you've seen is almost a sort of a, a syncretistic melding of the religion of Christianity and the religious experience of politics. And that's what we're frequently dealing with. I'm remembering Robert Jeffress somehow kind of endorsing Paula White's book. And I think that was like, that went just a little too far. Like he got a big blowback for that. It had to kind of, it was, and it was almost like, he was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist. Like there are, there are these like theological things that still, you know, matter in a, in a part of my life here. I mean, not to project onto him. It was just a really fascinating moment where it's like, oh, of course, the, those two are so closely allied, but not at all theologically. And Ruth, I just real quick can't help but mention that Babylon B piece about Robert Jeffress inviting all of his congregants in Dallas to take off their jewelry, gold or any other color, and bring it up to the front. And they melded it down and erected what? A beautiful sculpture of Donald Trump, right? <laughs> the unifying, the unifying, the great unifying theme. Please, excuse me. Uh, 
David, do you want it? This is kind of like veering away from the book a little bit and I'll get back to it. But as a Presbyterian, can you say a little more specifically about what you see theologically going on here? And, you know, Trump is inviting these, you know, charismatic televangelist types into the Oval Office. I mean, there's obviously, there were Southern Baptists there last week. There are Southern Baptists who and Presbyterians who support Trump. But we are seeing this new prominence of a certain strain of charismatic theology and I, I wonder if you can, yeah, if, there, if you can talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I think this is one thing where the media misses and has missed what's gone on a bit. And I've missed what's gone on a bit, just to be completely clear, because I live in the world of the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. And I spent many years in a, in a charismatic church, but I'm not in a charismatic church, haven't been in one for a long time. And so I'm surrounded on my daily life by Christians who are approaching politics in a, in a different way. Well, a big part of the sort of charismatic side of Christianity's commitment to Donald Trump is based on dreams and visions and prophecies, that there are individuals who, quote unquote, prophesied his rise. Those prophecies went extremely viral, have prophesied some of his travails while in office, and have prophesied another victory. And so what you're talking about, and then also there's this concept of sort of divine anointing, okay? This, this is a really, really important concept that uh, a lot of people don't understand. So, for example, there's an idea that, you know, from Romans 13, that authorities are instituted or ordained by God, that God is sovereign, and that one of the reasons we pray for our leaders, in addition to sort of this, you know, sense that we want our leaders to be virtuous, is we're we're dealing within a divine order created by God and sustained by God. And and so in that sense, Trump is instituted by God, but so is Joe Biden. So is Joe Biden. But there's another strain that sort of says, okay, but then there's such a thing, almost like an Old Testament king sense of a special anointing for a special person for a special purpose. And that in that circumstance, what you then begin to set up is this massive battle. If someone is the Lord's anointed, so this is the phrase you'll often hear, the Lord's anointed. So if someone is the Lord's anointed, opposition to the Lord's anointed is sort of especially evil. It's especially bad. And the church is supposed to submit to the Lord's anointed and defend the Lord's anointed. And and you see, as crazy as this might sound to listeners who are not in this world at all, there are a lot of people who believe that Trump has a special anointing, a special anointing for this time, for this place, for this purpose. And therefore, the battle against Trump is an epic spiritual battle between the forces of light and darkness. And those who are arrayed against Trump are darkness because Trump has the anointing. It's so fascinating, you know, first of all, to watch people turn on Pence when Pence was the rock solid evangelical brought on to sort of provide cover to Trump. And now Pence is, they don't need him anymore. You know, they have Trump. I, I wrote this piece for Slate a few years, years ago now, but it was a look at this book. I just was looking at it, Religion in the Oval Office, Gary Scott Smith, but looking back at the at religion through all these American presidencies. And basically, you know, for every single one, there was a faction of Christians for whom the president is like not Christian enough. And 
some fascinating stuff going, you know, even, you know, Thomas Jefferson rumors about him, like sacrificing, you know, making like sacrifices, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it's amusing as you look back historically. And, you know, at the time, my, my thesis was kind of like, look, no president in American history has ever been like Christian enough for the most devout Americans. And now, I mean, now we have one and it's, it's, you know, it's Donald Trump. It's just incredible of all the people, you know, the, all the men that have held that office. This is the guy who's like, Oh, finally, like he's it. <laughs> it's just so fascinating. Well, you know, there's a way, okay. It's sort of like, let's put on a different hat and sort of walk through this. And I think this will help people make sense of some of their fellow citizens. So the hat is this. You believe God works in the world, and God works in the world through very improbable people in very improbable ways, that God wants to preserve his church, and you've been told for 20 years that the church is in mortal threat from the left. And somebody comes in and they say, Ruth, the person that the Lord revealed to me who's going to win the presidency is Donald Trump. And your first reaction is, there is no way. You mean the apprentice guy? There is no way. And what happens? He becomes president. Okay, well, so then that that means, holy smokes, I'm now going to listen to this individual or these sets of people. And then one of the things you know about this worldview is that when you do have the Lord's anointed, that's kicking off spiritual warfare at a huge level. And so everything from the Mueller investigation to Kavanaugh to Covington Catholic to impeachment number one, all of those things are evidence that. Trump walked in and kicked up the hornet's nest. And so so rather than saying, no, wait a minute, actually Trump did a lot of bad stuff. And that's why he's getting opposition. It's no, this is the Lord's anointed. And then when you extend this forward, that he, he won in 2016, the forces of Obama come against him with the Mueller investigation. He wins. Part of this fiction is only Trump could have gotten Kavanaugh through. He won. <laughs> Trump defeated impeachment number one. He won. So again, you see this is the Lord's anointed and you're seeing the power of the Lord's anointed plowing through the culture. And then in 2020, by 2 a.m. on November 4th, you know, right after midnight on November 3rd, if you didn't know, if you weren't like one of these political walks where you know that the Milwaukee precincts are coming in, you know the Detroit's coming in, you know that Philly's coming in, you know the handwriting's on the wall. And you see these numbers and you go to bed. He did it again. He did it again. And it's even more surprising because he was even more down in the polls. So then you wake up and it's 9 a.m., 8 a.m., no, November 4th, and it's gone. It's gone. All of a sudden, it's gone. And so when, you've, when you're fully inhabiting this world, you can start to see all of the sea, the ground was fertile, for everything that happened next, fertile, because that had to be part of this good versus evil battle for which Trump had always triumphed in the past. You know, you guys have talked a lot about the sort of theological, religious dynamics in play here, and of course the politics as well. But what about the economics? You talk a little bit in the book, David, about this notion that there's sort of, a, it's, it's lucrative and beneficial for a certain class of pundit 
activist and politician for this to be in play. And when a retro analysis is done on 2016, you know, and you see the amount of media coverage that was given to Donald Trump versus the 14, 15 other candidates, you know, at the time, it's highly disproportionate. And he has often said even, right, that it's it's good for him, it's good for it's good for ratings too. And so what about the economics has sort of led to this, especially as you each see media structures today? I mean, <laughs> it was really fascinating to see, to me to see a number of people who are now among the most vociferous defenders of Trump were among his some of his biggest critics. And many of those critics in 2016 and 2015 who turned into some of his defenders were people who are also pretty successful and kind of thought they had the finger on their pulse of the conservative movement. And it turned out maybe not. And so there was a quick shift. There's an immediate massive, when, when somebody becomes president of the United States, it's hard to sort of overstate the level of raw demand that is created for people to serve him. He has thousands of jobs that are immediately open, that are powerful and influential and can make a resume for a lifetime that are immediately his to dispense. The people who receive those jobs also have jobs that they can give. There is a market on cable news, for example. There's always a slot for somebody to defend the sitting president of the United States. There's a slot there always. In a hyperpartisan time, you're going to have his voters, there's going to be a huge market demand for somebody to defend the person that they voted for. So immediately what happened was the creation of a vast governmental and market demand for defense of Donald Trump. Nature abhors a vacuum, and y'all, it was filled with a vengeance. It was filled with a vengeance. And so what ended up happening is a lot of people essentially just switched the things that they had said before were no longer operative, to sort of use the Nixon era phrase. And, and now, you know, I was, I've been a lawyer long enough to know that one thing that is absolutely crystal clear about the human beings is we quickly believe our own BS. Like, we quickly. So the idea that there's everybody out there is running around going, heh, heh, heh. I don't really believe this, but I'm going to say it anyway for the cash is, is wrong. Perhaps even worse in some ways is now people fanatically believe ideas that they would have rejected five years ago. In some ways, that's even worse in my mind. But it is also true that that engine of demand created a category of a person who will say one thing about Donald Trump in private and say another thing in public. Sometimes that's out of fear. Sometimes that's out of opportunity or ambition, but it's absolutely there. And it's especially endemic on Capitol Hill. So that's a, that's very optimistic, isn't it? That's just. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting too, with all the, that slot of like the Trump evangelicals where, where, you know, you're just calling those same people over and over and over for, you know, someone to sort of defend from a Christian perspective. And it was, you know, a, fairly small list of folks and not not all of whom had been terribly prominent before. It's just like a very just interesting, interesting mix of people who kind of who, who step into that slot. But yeah, I think that they'll be there no matter what. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is and that we have to acknowledge there. Well, there's a couple of things that we have to acknowledge because we have not yet talked about the role of race in all of this. 
which is very important to address. The, the other thing, though, is the raw fear and intimidation that for years has been inflicted on Trump critics for years. And a lot of the silence that you see is the product of an extremely efficient and powerful right-wing cancel culture. I mean, we've forgotten it, but you know, my friend Russell Moore was almost chased out of his position at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission because he spoke from his heart during the 2016 president. In other words, doing what his predecessors did, speaking about politics passionately. And he was almost chased out. You know, I can tell story after story of individuals facing unbelievable acts of intimidation, character assassination, threats for opposing Trump. And so that's one way to sort of clear the marketplace, right? To raise the barrier of entry. And that's part of the story of what's happened. And, and that's coming out more and more and more now in the post-election contest because we've seen so many Republicans and Democrats who have followed election law getting hit hard with this and then obviously culminating in the January 6th riot. Well, let me, because I'm looking ahead too to this Sunday, supposedly there will be a whole other series of rallies at state capitals. You know, one of your proposals in the book is is like, let California be California, let Texas be Texas, let Tennessee be Tennessee. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, thinking about the storming of the Michigan Capitol and, you know, does that actually solve it? Or even if you're, you know, if you're in a state that's 60, 40 in whatever direction, that's still 40% of people who might be really angry and, and, you know, show up at the Capitol. Does it just fragment the problem into 50, you know, 50 new similar crises of division? Well, you know, one of the things that if you read my book, it is not utopian. (laughs) (laughs) It is not. In other words, my solutions are not utopian. I'm not saying, okay, here's we have this crisis. Here's how the country could fracture, which is parts one and two. And here's part three, kumbaya. You know, that's not it at all. I refer to this phrase from Scott Alexander, who is a pseudonymous writer for a, a website called Slate Star Codex, which don't be deterred by the weird name. It's very ins- insightful and interesting. And he once described pluralism and classical liberalism as the greatest civil war avoidance mechanism ever created by the mind of man. And the thing about pluralism, classical liberalism, is that it gives space for dissent. It allows people to disagree. And it gives space for diverse communities to live in the same national family. So everything that I'm proposing is not a for the elimination of friction. It is to make friction more manageable. So the federalism proposal is not to say that you won't have divisions within California or you won't have divisions within Tennessee. It's to de-escalate the national stakes of all of our of our presidential election, where you feel like if I live in Tennessee and a California politician wins, they're gonna try to make Tennessee California. And if I live in California and a Tennessee politician wins, you're gonna try to make California Tennessee. And so what what I'm saying is we need to de-escalate national politics. It is not a path. If you have a subset of the population that is consumed with violent intent, federalism And pluralism are not the answer to that. But one part of the book that I do emphasize is a commitment to the Bill of Rights and a commitment to a healthy federalism. And look, armed gangs storming the Capitol, that's a direct threat to liberty. That's a direct threat to the Republic. That's a direct threat to the Bill of Rights. It's hard to have a right to free speech if you're going to be killed for it. 
by an armed MAGA militia. And so, you know, there is a fundamental necessity of creating ordered liberty, ordered liberty, meaning, you know, that one of the reasons for the order that the state creates is for the protection of liberty. The right to vote is an aspect of ordered liberty. Free speech rightly understood is an aspect of ordered liberty. And so you have to protect these values or you don't have anything (laughs) at all. And so, yeah, I think one of the things that's dissatisfied some people about the book is it's, it doesn't have a, here's the four step plan. Because one of the parts of the book that's absolutely necessary before you can even begin to get to some of these legal reforms that I propose is there has to be a degree of a heart change. People have to be willing to tolerate each other to some degree. I'm not saying love each other. I'm saying tolerate each other to some degree. Or again, we're lost. We're lost. And so it's not your five-point plan to kumbaya. And you talk a little bit in the book about the decline in friendship, the spike in loneliness, and a little bit of a generational problem also, the sort of what's happened to my parents, as many millennials are asking for their parents to vote one way and them another. I wonder if you'd comment just a little bit more, given your own experience, given each of your experience, really, about sort of online warfare or online engagement as a place of meaning, sometimes a rising sort of rush and and, and venom to be on the cable news, you know, shows and, and beyond Twitter and, and engaging in place of, of knowing your next door neighbor in place of, of, of better friendship and sort of how that condition factors into this possible secession thread. Yeah. You know, one of the most telling pieces of research, and it's always fun when research sort of matches your own individual perception, <laughs> it feels like, oh yeah, okay. I'm not imagining things. One of the most interesting pieces of research that I talk about in the whole in the book is the notion, this idea found by the group More in Common, which did this hidden tribe survey of American life, which says that we're not really two tribes, we're a bunch of tribes, and some of them are not really fully understood. And what they noted is that those people are most engaged with political media are often the most wrong about the beliefs of their political opponents, that they tend to believe by a pretty substantial margin, that their political opponents are more extreme than they really are. I think this is endemic, for example, on Twitter, where you're always in this nutpicking environment. So you're, in fact, you're scorned or mocked or belittled if you try to claim that your opponents are not extremely radical and dangerous. And what they found is that the people that are least engaged in political media were the most accurate about their political opponents. And part of it's because they're getting their their ideas about politics from these things called friendships and relationships. And so I do think that we have a situation where I think it's absolutely the case that we have extremely unhealthy engagements in social media, but the class of people who should disengage are also the class of people who are least likely to disengage because it's a source of tremendous meaning for them to engage and purpose to engage in these online battles. I mean, it's just, I don't know how you get out of it, but it's just so toxic that, you know, you, you open up your phone and you get delivered to you the worst thing that any liberal, you know, self-described liberal did anywhere in the country. You, you might be seeing a video of it. Same thing, you know, for conservatives. And I, I don't know how that, that little, you know, you're getting that little pleasure pellet in your, <laughs> in the maze. And it feels it's sort of impossible to convince people that, that's not healthy. 
Few things showed me this reality better than the the protests and riots after the George Floyd murder. I tried about split my social media feed, especially on Twitter, about half conservative and half liberal. And it was like two different worlds. The conservative feed was picture after picture after picture of rioters breaking windows, setting fires, beating police officers. It was awful to see. The other side of my feed was video after video after video of police officers seemingly unprovoked attacking people one after the other. This happened in Des Moines. This happened in Buffalo. This happened in, it was like there were two parallel worlds, one of police attacking peaceful protesters. And here was another one of, what do you mean peaceful protesters? These are rioters. And they both had video evidence. They both had video evidence that was just streaming in. And then in the hyperpolarized time, one of the places where there was the least room for a conversation was to say, we have a rioting problem and we have a police brutality problem. That was no man's land right there because you had to pick which one was going to be your priority. You right, you know, you had to pick it. And if you picked one as your priority, then you couldn't really talk about the other one. Otherwise, you're sort of harming the cause. And that's when it got really stark to me, sort of very stark in a visual way. It just occurs to me, journalism can be so rich for going deep, for sort of drawing out the curiosities and the distinctives and unique cultural realities in a person's story, in a pastor's story, in a congregant's story. I think of Ruth's piece, The Bible That Oozed Oil, that you did for Slate before coming to New York Times, you know, about that pastor in Dalton, Georgia. And it was it was fun, and it had turns, and it was a narrative, and it was really interesting and intriguing, you know. And then on the other hand, I think about Eric Metaxas, uh, David, who you've debated a couple of times along the way, you know, and he's had a real a real rush in the Twitter space to say things like, you know, Joe Biden will end America, that I'd be happy to die in this fight because God is with us, because Jesus is with us, Mr. President, you know, and the rush and the pull and the allure of that sort of like fame ring or something like that, power really. So, you know, help us understand how, how journalism can be part of the solution in drawing out uniquenesses and how, you know, we might be careful to avoid some of those dynamics if we're, a, if we're sort of people are in the, in the leadership role as, as a faith leader and pulled toward political fame power. Wait, can you, I'm sorry, can you say again, just a little bit like what journalism should be answering there or, or can you just say it again? Well, your wonderful colleague, Dean Baquet, has that line about, we need to get religion better than we do in America. And there's only one or maybe two, you know, religion writers in our paper. You know, there are a lot of writers. And religion writers tend to be able to draw out if it's 24% evangelicals and if it's 19% Catholics and if it's 14% mainline Protestants and 2% Jews and on and on, you know, 10% and 9% African-American Christians. Religion writers are going to be good at at sort of understanding that line, but others not so much. You know, so how, how can journalists be part of the solution in, in helping more people get religion so we aren't hoodwinked by a, another lie? I mean, I don't know that I have like a, if I knew I'd be doing it already, or I don't know, you know, I don't know. You just keep telling stories one by one and trying to show whole people, show what motivates them, you know, show them as the complicated people they are and what they're, what they're getting from some of this. And I think, you know, I think there's also ways to be really clear eyed about the impact of certain beliefs without 
mocking or belittling or, or kind of making making someone seem strange. I think that the job should be to do the opposite, although also remaining totally clear-eyed about what these ideas mean in the world and the impact of these ideas. And and then, you know, hopefully over the course of a year or a career, you know, you're doing a mix of quote unquote positive stories or, you know, that you're showing the full breadth of religious life in the US and that you're not just doing a certain kind of, again, I really don't like to use the word like a positive story or a negative story. I just don't think of it that way, but that you're doing a variety of stories that really like does justice to religion in America. You know, when it comes to the media, <laughs> there's enormous distrust, right? Enormous. We have to it's distinguish. So much between, worse. <laughs> yes. We have to distinguish between earned distrust and manufactured distrust. We really have to. Because the very existence of distrust is not evidence, is not necessarily evidence of a problem. So it's like saying, well, there's 60 million people who don't believe this election was legitimate. Well, that's not evidence that the election was illegitimate. It's evidence that people believe it is, but why? You have to ask why. So one of the things about the media is I do think it can be, and I think it would be of real value, especially at sort of the highest echelons of the profession if it was more ideologically and religiously diverse. I'm not saying everything has to track with all the various percentages of every idea in American life, just more, just more. And because an awful lot of ideological cocoons create blindness. And sometimes, you know, it's like that old Rumsfeld line, there's known unknowns and unknown unknowns. I think a lot of the, the deficiencies in the media that are the unknown unknowns because of the lack of diversity. And newsrooms are trying to do a good, better job on r racial and ethnic diversity and, and things like that, but doesn't seem to be as much of an emphasis on diversity of ideas. I think that will help. But we also have to know that there is a giant industry that now exists in this country that its beating heart is manufacturing loathing of the media. I've said this several times, and once you see it, you sort of can't unsee it. And that is, in the era of Trump, every scandal, if you're in right-wing media, every scandal, every scandal was eventually a media scandal. And sometimes with even the worst of the Trump stuff, there would be almost this strategic silence as sort of the, the legion of defenders sort of waited. Who's going to be the blue checkmark journalist who goes too far? And as soon as somebody goes too far... Boom, that's the story. And, and so there's this giant manufactured distrust. So I'll give you a really good example. Number one, I am the furthest thing from perfect as a human being can be. I am a very imperfect person. I call things wrong, okay? I get things wrong. But what's very interesting to me, as somebody who grew up evangelical, I can't remember a time in my life, I mean, even in Iraq, where I wasn't attending worship services or Bible studies of some amount weekly until the pandemic, and then we were online. Like, I'm, this is my world. This is my world. Doesn't mean I understand it perfectly. Doesn't mean I know everything. It doesn't mean I'm right about things. But as far as like understanding this world as much as a person can understand it, it's my world. And what am I told every time I say something? that folks in this world don't want to hear. You don't get us. You don't understand us. You're becoming like them, you know, the secular media. 
So what you have to realize is for an awful lot of people, there is a market for one thing, and that's affirmation. And so we can say all day, media, you need to do better. True. Stipulated. (laughs) There's not an American industry that doesn't need to do better. But we also have to say, we kind of get what we ask for in our media. And also that we sometimes critique the media when it tells us uncomfortable truths. And I think that's just a reality and we have to confront it and face it. And that's me knowing full well, I've gotten stuff wrong and I have to be able to own that when I do. Well, one concluding comment from me is that having Ruth Graham writing authentically at New York Times and having David write your pieces, French Press at uh, The Dispatch is a small part of the solution. Please keep reading them. And uh, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Faith Angle exists to help connect leading journalists and leading religion scholars. Thanks for listening.